the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Brigadier General Omer Lavoie, OMM MSC CD, former commanding officer of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Canadian Regiment, former commander of the 4th Canadian Division, Director General of Defence Force Planning. I can say going to RMC from that situation probably made me a lot different than anyone else in my peer group. I'm the only guy who showed up there with an old pickup truck and a gun rack in the back and a couple shotguns under the seat. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. So here we are bringing 2015 to a close and what do we have to look at as far as 2015 is concerned? We were very lucky to have 10 episodes produced in 2015, not quite once per month. A little bit disappointed about that, but certainly pressing towards episode 50, which will be the next episode. So currently we're at episode 49. I do have something specific in mind for episode 50. I'm not going to spill the beans right now. I do have that episode recorded. It's just a matter of finding time to edit and getting that produced for you as soon as I can. So 2015 started off with Honorary Colonel Bill Graham, the former Minister of National Defense who started with the Royal Canadian Navy. And then there was quite a pause before the April 1st episode with Deputy Chief Tom Carreek. Moving on, we had a member of the Canadian Rangers, Corporal Jolie Carnook, and my former command team partner, Colonel Dwayne Hobbs, followed that in episode 43. Some good friends of mine were very happy to jump in and be guests on the show. Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson, Warrant Officer Glenn Moore, and Chief Warrant Officer Bill Darling at episode 48 for Bill Darling, which was the first numerically significant episode of the show. And in between all that, we had Lieutenant General Peter Devlin, former commander of the Canadian Army, on board, as well as Brigadier General Gary Thompson, who was the Deputy Commander of Land Force Central Area, which is now known as the 4th Canadian Division, and he was also the commanding officer of the Royal Regiment of Canada. So 2015 saw us at 10 new episodes produced, not quite once per month, as I said, but still keeping the program moving along as I find time to edit and produce between trips to the Arctic and being deployed on op provision, all kinds of other things going on in life keeping me away from the microphone. Speaking about the microphone, uh, Santa was very nice to me this year, bought me a brand new microphone, which I hope is producing a greater quality of sound for you to listen to. That's my goal, producing something that you enjoy listening to and that you come back to time and time again. So what can we look forward to in 2016? In 2016, obviously, we will have episode 50. Episode 50 is recorded. I have something very special in mind for episode 50, and I hope that it comes off the way that I had planned. And moving on in 2016, we're going to look forward to hopefully some more guests from the Royal Canadian Navy and the Royal Canadian Air Force, wherever they are. We can find them and get them onto Skype so that I can record their show. And I'm also exploring an invitation with the Royal Canadian Military Institute in Toronto. Hopefully they will have me in as a speaker. They've already confirmed that I will be on as a speaker. It's just a matter of scheduling a date. And my good friend Greg Briggs has found a couple of contacts for me, some interesting people that he's encountered and he's good friends with that will make the connection and get recorded onto the show. Today's episode is with Brigadier General Omer Lavoie, who is from the Royal Canadian Regiment, and he spent most of his career in the Royal Canadian Regiment before moving on to senior command. However, he is a Royal Canadian at heart. He started off with the Lake Superior Scottish in the early 80s before being accepted as a student at the Royal Military College, 
Upon graduation, he was commissioned as an officer in the Royal Canadian Regiment. And of course, you already know this, if this is not your first episode, that he will get into that story as the episode plays out. I had the very distinct pleasure of being one of the command teams under the command of Brigadier General Lavoie when he was the commander of Land Force Central Area and subsequently the commander of the 4th Canadian Division. If I were to steal a word from York Regional Police and bring that to define General Lavoie, I would have to say that he is mission-focused, and everything that he does is driven by making sure that the mission is accomplished and that the soldiers have what they need to make that mission successful. He has an eye for detail, and one of the quotes that I can remember distinctly from him is that the best classroom is in the field and under canvas. And I'll always remember that, and I will always take that away from my experience with Brigadier General Lavoie. Here's my interview with Brigadier General Omer Lavoie. Brigadier General Lavoie, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Mike, very happy to get together and actually do this. Absolutely, sir. So you and I first met when you became the commander of Land Force Central Area, Joint Task Force Central, but I remember you didn't remain the LFCA commander for very long, though. Yeah, that's right. So as you know, at about that time, a whole bunch of initiatives in the Canadian Army to regain you know, everything from back to our traditional rank structure and including going back to renaming some of our formations back to their original names. So shortly after taking command, there was an initiative to transition Land Force Central Area back to 4th Canadian Division. Yeah, certainly very proud to have been the first commander again of the 4th Division really since about 1946. I certainly recall the event that you hosted to mark the transition. I don't know if you would call it a ceremony, but it was definitely a recognition gathering where we had some historical context brought into it. My own 4th Canadian Division map from World War I was brought out of my office for people to see, and you brought some speakers in. That was a really classy event. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it was a good way to commemorate it. And interestingly enough, I was just at the War Museum yesterday with the Chairman of the Military Council, the Senior General of NATO, and one of the exhibitions there had a display of what then was 4th Canadian Armored Division, and one of its biggest actions during World War II was the Falaise Gap. So it was interesting to sit there and, and look at that again as a commander 60, 70 years plus. Yeah, absolutely. Now, sir, I sent you the questions in advance. Are you all set? I'm good to go. Excellent. Please tell the listeners why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces. Okay. <laughs> so, how long do I have? Long <laughs> so, yeah, I guess a multitude of reasons, really. I mean, I was very much influenced as a young guy. Uh, as a kid, grew up, my grandparents ran the Legion in a very small town, Marathon, Ontario, Northern Ontario. So, at a very young age, I was exposed to, uh, at that time, lots of World War II veterans still around. So, influenced by that. Also, I think you may or may not know, I grew up, you know, Pretty dirt poor in a pretty rough part of that small town, which was not eloquently named Dog Patch. Some guys, uh, when I go back, some of my buddies refer to me as the uh, the Dog Patch General. <laughs> so grew up pretty rough and pretty poor. And so at a young age, to put food on the table, I learned how to trap, I learned how to shoot and hunt at about 10 years old onward. So I think that exposure to the outdoors and, and that type of life sort of was a natural draw into the army. So, like a lot of us, at about 16, joined the reserves as a private soldier in the Lake Superior Scottish Regiment. Did that during my last couple of years of high school. That certainly confirmed that love of soldiering and, and being a soldier was my calling. And it had actually originally applied to simply transfer into the regular force as an infantry soldier, but went to the recruiter. He said, oh, your marks are pretty good. You might want to try to go for military college and explain that. And again, something for me at that age... At uh, that time, because we did grow up pretty poor, university wasn't even ever in the equation because it just simply was unaffordable. Right. So I went through that process anyways and got selected to go to military college and then did that and, of course, commissioned into the infantry and joined the Royal Canadian Regiment. Excellent. 
What year was that, sir? So 1983 when I joined the reserves, 85 when I transitioned to the regular force, and then commissioned into the RCR in 1989. So what was the world like when you joined, sir? Well, as you know, <laughs> much simpler, I guess, in a lot of ways. I mean, we were still, when we joined in 83, I'd say we're still getting close to the apex of the Cold War, right? The the wall wasn't going to fall for another six years. So you were probably a young reservist at around the same time. So our training right. was focused to go over and fight the Cold War if and when necessary. And, and at that time, we thought it was still a possibility. That was certainly my first six or seven years in the Army. The training was focused on fighting the Soviets. And, of course, the wall fell, and then we transitioned into the long period of peacekeeping operations, stability operations, etc., and to where we are now. Absolutely. You already spoke about being a trapper and not being so well off financially. Is there anything else you would like to reflect on about what you were like when you joined? Maybe both as a young private and then as a young student at RMC? Yeah, well, I think... In one way, I guess it's having a rough upbringing, and though I'd never want my kids to ever experience the same things that uh, I experienced as a young guy, I think on the other side, it's sort of character building, and it sort of teaches you how to play the cards that you're dealt, and that sort of served me well later on as a lieutenant colonel, commanding officer, and that sort of thing. So I think coming from a poor, and I'll say a dysfunctional family, and father was an alcoholic, I grew up pretty quick and learned how to take charge. But at the same time, having that sort of stigma in a small town, coming from the poorest family, certainly causes you, on one hand, to have a lack of confidence and a bit of shyness. And on the other hand, it, uh, it teaches you to be quick with your fist pretty fast if you have to as well, right? <laughs> right. It also can serve you occasionally well for being a soldier. But I think those kind of hardships, it does teach you to cope and to deal with the stressful situations that you may, and which I did eventually encounter later on in life. So I can say going to RMC from that situation probably made me a lot different than anyone else in my peer group. I'm the only guy who showed up there with an old pickup truck and a gun rack <laughs> on the back and a couple of shotguns under the seat, but eventually learned to fit in on, on that side of it as well. Right. Well, if I was to hang an adjective on you, it certainly would not be shyness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's the great thing about, I think, going into the Army and through the military college system and that. I mean, obviously, as you'd recognize, by necessity, right, it takes it out of you or you just simply aren't going to progress in the military, especially in a, in a leadership role. But I think at the same time, it's good because it. I like to think anyways that it, that experience that I've gone through as a young guy <laughs> teaches you humility, which is, to me, a, an important an ingredient of leadership, right? Definitely, sir. Sir, what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? Well, you know the answer to that. It's, it's, it's certainly my time as the commanding officer of the 1RCR battle group off in Afghanistan in, in 06 and 07, and specifically in that seven-month time frame, having the opportunity to command troops in combat during Operation Medusa, for sure. And it's always a hard question to answer, not so much the military guys because you recognize it, but it's characterized as the highest point of your life. It's an opportunity that, after being in the military for 20 years, being handed the privilege of commanding troops in combat at a battle group level, uh, you're actually now doing what you've been trained to do your whole career. And on the other side, it's the lowest part of your life because, sadly, during that time, lost 19 soldiers, killed in action, about another 140 soldiers, wounded more than half of them very seriously. So it's that duality of being a commander and a soldier that's a great achievement, but that great achievement comes at the cost of great sacrifice, and that sacrifice is borne by your soldiers. Right. 
I try to explain that in a context that people outside the military might understand, and I take it to their profession, and I say, imagine training to do your profession for so many years and never actually having the opportunity to do that profession and only doing it in a training context. And that's why soldiers want to deploy, that's why sailors want to be at sea, and that's why our aviators want to be in the sky. It's because we have been trained to do this job, and when we get that opportunity finally to do it, there are regrettable outcomes, but we still have that desire to do our trade, to apply our trade. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a great analogy, and, and the hardest part of being a commander is, is your casualties. Definitely. Both your soldiers killed in action and wounded, but as we know, it's what we're trained to do as soldiers and, and as leaders. Is there any event that stands out in your mind as a particularly memorable achievement that when you reflect back? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly the greatest achievement, but also the greatest sacrifice is what stick out during that time. So certainly the greatest achievement during that operation is finally after several weeks of fighting and having to change the plan and losing soldiers, killed and wounded, but finally being able to attack and achieve what was called objective rugby during Operation Medusa. So the NATO assigned a final objective where the fight uh, originally had started. So finally taking that objective, where a few weeks earlier I had lost four soldiers on the first day at the, on the same objective, was certainly a huge sense uh, of achievement. Absolutely. But came in a great sacrifice. And then on the other side of the coin, as many are aware, not too long after, on a patrol that I was commanding, ambushed and lost my regimental sergeant major, Chief Warrant Officer Bobby Gerard, and his driver. So also uh, sticks out uh, as a memorable event, but for uh, sadly for different reasons. Definitely, sir, definitely. Sir, speaking about those people that have influenced you, who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? Yeah, that's, that's a tough question because as you go through your career, you're influenced by different people at different levels and for different reasons. Absolutely. <laughs> some positive and some negative. Yes, I would never want to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so saying it sounds a bit odd, but I remember as a young guy, Always being interested in military history and reading a soldier story, which was written in the 1950s by General Omar Bradley. And I'd always, when read that, thought if I was ever going to become a senior leader or a general, I'd want to try to personify him because he was known as the soldier soldier. And interestingly, also came from a very poor background. And the story of how he got to West Point, very similar to how I ended up going to RMC. So that was a very early influence. I think I read that book when I was about 15 or so. Right. I still have a copy of it that I every now and then go back and read pieces of it when I think I need a dose of humility injected into me. So he was a very early influence, but someone obviously that I'd never met in person. One of my biggest influences is actually one of my peers. And if you ever get a chance to interview him, I, I would highly recommend it. So a, a fellow by the name of Steve Nash, so a lieutenant colonel, retired now, RCR as well. But we were classmates at Royal Roads Military College. He was my karate instructor. Mm. We went on to become platoon commanders together in the 2nd Battalion and then company commanders together in the 1st Battalion and still remain close friends to Steve. It just shows you that influences come from a lot of ways. But Steve was a close friend of mine and a great leader, great tactician, very competent and he's always the kind of guy that, despite the fact eventually I went on to do different things than Steve, he was always the guy that I sort of, as a young guy, aspired to be like. If I could be as good a platoon commander, as fit, as good a leader as Steve, I would be in good company for sure. Certainly. Now, I know the Royal Canadian Regiment is full of memorable characters. Is there any particular memorable character that sticks out in your mind? Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess for me... Again, a multitude, right? From a respectful perspective, another gentleman that I hold in high court in terms of mentorship was General Jack Vance. 
So Lieutenant General Jack Vance was the colonel of the regiment when I was the, the regimental adjutant for the RCR. And just a great mentor when it came to leadership. And I remember lots of afternoons going down to Tweed where he lived on his farm. Often he'd invite my wife and kids. We'd be doing some regimental business, but also we'd be social and we'd have an opportunity to talk about things. And he would just talk about leadership because it was so natural to him. And that had a huge influence on me. And that continued on up until through when I was the battle group commander and I came back from Afghanistan and he invited me to come down to the farm for an afternoon to share my experiences in leadership in combat. So that's very, very memorable from a, an influence perspective of a great general that we had in the RCR. Right, absolutely. Now, sir, we've come to the last question. What is the greatest challenge that you've had to overcome during your service? Yeah, without doubt, it was the loss of my regimental sergeant major during that tour in Afghanistan. It was the greatest challenge on a number of different domains. As you know, as a former regimental sergeant major yourself, that bond uh, within the command team when you're the commanding officer, and particularly on operations like not, you have no friends in the battle group because <laughs> it's the old adage, lonely at the top, but your RSM is, is your closest confidant, is the closest thing you have to a friend. You can close the ramp of the lab and have a uh, very frank uh, conversation, and he'll tell you uh, what he's uh, thinking because that's what his job is, but when the ramp drops, right, you're speaking with the same voice, no matter what the conversation was inside. Absolutely. And we were just close. Our families were close in that year. And the interesting thing was, I'd never actually, before we became the command team of the 1st Battalion, I'd never actually met him. But in that year and a bit of lead up to Afghanistan, I, you know, my joke was I slept with him more nights than I had my wife. <laughs> and usually in pretty close proximity in a hooch or the back of a lab. So we developed that relationship on a friend as friends, and our families were close. Uh, you know, and then sadly, I went on to walk his daughter down the aisle uh, because he couldn't. So when, wow. so when I lost Bobby, huge, devastating from a personal perspective, but from a leadership perspective, it was almost near overwhelming because it was you lost that one confidant you had in the battle group. And the toughest period in that whole tour was about the three weeks it took from the time Bobby was killed on 27 November to the time it took for my, at the time, drill sergeant major and then appointed regimental sergeant major Mark Miller to get into theater and pick up. So I could tell you there was no more of a lonely time in my life than being forward and feeling the sense of loss that the troops had because they never before that had ever seen me without the RSM, right? Right. So I lost my fire team partner, and it was a huge leadership challenge to me personally, but from a battle group perspective, I had to ensure that there were a lot of soldiers who wanted to even the score because of that, and clearly that wasn't the, the business that we were in, so it was right. continuing to bring the fight to the enemy, but doing it with the same professionalism and, and all that goes along with that as we always had. And it's just that piece of being in command that despite that loss, and the same thing for the other 18 soldiers I lost in that tour, I think what got me through it and got me through the other one uh, as well was the fact that despite how devastating it was, I always knew that I still had 1,300, 1,400 soldiers who were relying on me to keep the battle group pointed in the right direction, keep bringing the fight to the enemy, keep taking the objectives that we were assigned to take, and that got me through a lot of tough moments, but uh, certainly when the loss of uh, my RSM, that uh, it sustained me through that. Certainly. Well, sir, that's the type of loss that I can't even imagine. I know the bond, as you already said, between the CO and the RSM, between the commander and the brigade or division sergeant major, it's a unique bond, that, that command team bond, and definitely something that I certainly haven't experienced. And historically, we haven't experienced since Beaumont Hamel. Is that right, eh? I often wonder when the last time was that we'd lost a regimental sergeant major in combat. So you'd answer that. In Canada, it was Beaumont Hamel. Right, eh? In the Commonwealth, it was the Falkland Islands. Is that right, eh? Yeah. 
Now, sir, we've come to the end of the four questions. Is there anything that you're currently working on or any projects that are important to you right now? Yeah, so currently I'm in National Defense Headquarters, part of the Vice Chief uh, Defense Staff Group and the Director General for Defense Force Planning, which simply means that I have a responsibility in strategic resource management. So it's working at that level now uh, as a uh, general officer doing uh, strategic planning for both the department and the Canadian Armed Forces. And as always, it's a significant time right now as we're in transition and making sure that the right resources go to the right priorities at the right time. But it always comes back down to the fact, even though I'm now behind a desk and I'm not wearing cat pat, um, <laughs> my mantra is that what we're doing here is it's for one reason, is to enable the warfighter to be able to do all the stuff that I just talked about in the first part of this interview. Certainly. And without speculating on which direction we're going to be headed, I anticipate we're going to find ourselves suddenly busy in the next couple of months. But anyhow, sir, I'd like to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. Well, you know, I think uh, the episode certainly went, went from soup to nuts, literally, right? When, <laughs> when I, I joined the Army at 16 to 30 years uh, after. You know, all I can say is that the best summary is that I think I'm the luckiest guy in the world in terms of having had a chance to do what most folks only aspire to do in their career. But I think the theme I like to stick on is that theme of the humility that not for one second do I think it would not have happened if it wasn't for a lot of good luck, good timing, right place, right time, or sometimes wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> but most importantly, it's, and I know it starts to become cliche, but it's being surrounded by great soldiers, great NCOs, great officers who have supported me and, and frankly have, have made me uh, enjoy the successes that I've that enjoyed through the career. And it's been a, a great career and I wouldn't change anything for a second, even the uh, even the hard parts, unfortunately. Absolutely. Sir, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to being a guest on the show. I know this was a long time coming, a long time planning. We've had a couple of detours on the route, but I really appreciate you setting this time aside to coming on to the show. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. N-Tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike LaCroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike LaCroix Production.